happy anniversary of the first day that we met. Remember when you were young and in love, you know, you would always celebrate, this is our one-week anniversary. This is our one month, our three months. So this is our, our one-month anniversary since we met. So it's been so great to get to know many of you. And for those of you that we haven't had a chance yet, I, I look forward to getting to know you. Do you think I could take a picture of you this morning? Can I take a panoramic picture? This is a panoramic. So we're going to start over here. I just want to capture this minute. There we go, all the way across here. Look at that. Look at these beautiful people here to worship God this morning. Amen. All the way to cross, right over there. Thank you so much for that. Uh, in 2008, there was an Australian woman named Haley Bartholomew. And uh, Haley had come to a realization about herself. She recognized that she had a great life. She was married to a man that she loved dearly, and she had great kids that she was proud of and proud to be their mom. But something was going on in her heart. She, she was, described herself as feeling lost. She kind of was like, I, I feel like I'm on a treadmill of life. And so she didn't really know what to do. Like she had this great life, but she didn't really feel like she was really appreciative of all that she had. And, and so it was puzzling to her. And so she went to get some counsel and get some perspective. And she went to a life coach who just happened to be a nun. And, and the nun challenged her to do this, to reflect and find something, one thing at least every day to be thankful for. I don't know if you've ever been in counseling, but, but she went into counseling and she left disappointed. That's what happens sometimes, right? And you're, first, you're like, well, that was like, that, that's too simple, right? Like, how is that supposed to help me? And so Haley went home and, and she got a journal out and she sat down that first night trying to think of something in her day to be thankful for and she couldn't think of anything. And so she left the page blank. And she was kind of frustrated about it, but as she was thinking that through through the week, what she recognized, she, she was a photographer by nature, and, and so what she did is she, she got rid of the journal, and she went and bought uh, a whole year's supply of Instax film. Anyone remember the, the instant Polaroid? She got Instax film and determined that she was going to take a picture every day of something she was thankful for. And so out of that came 365 Grateful. Uh, a book and a, a website that she uh, created. And, and as she went through this, uh, taking a picture every day, she began to notice things she was thankful for that she'd previously overlooked. One of the things she uh, describes is that she often thought of her husband as being unromantic. Unromantic man. And uh, she said, I wouldn't describe him as very romantic, but one day she was taking a picture of her husband dishing up the pie. And, uh, and she, that's what, that was the picture. And she recognized in this moment that her husband had given her the perfect sliced triangle pie. That so she got the nice big piece of pie. How many know the point on the pie is the best tasting part of the pie, right? The point of the pizza, it's all about the point. And so she got that crisp looking point. And then she noticed, how many know when you're, you're cutting pie, right? The first piece is always like the sloppy, like you're trying to get in there. It's always a mess, right? And so he took the sloppy pie for himself and gave her the point. And she recognized, he loves me. He's so romantic. And, and she began to recognize more and more that her husband would often do that. He would give her the better piece, the better the, the drink. He was always uh, serving her in her needs. And so she gave a TED Talk uh, at the end of this year about the profound impact of what being grateful had done to her life. And she said this, taking one photo every day of something I was grateful for really reprogrammed my brain. 
seeing and celebrating the good in my life affected not only the way I felt spiritually and physically, but it improved my relationships with others too. So thanks for letting me take a photo of something I'm thankful for this morning. Uh, how many of you, the, the Christian word for grateful is blessed, right? It's blessed. Oh, I'm so blessed, right? And if you're on social media, it's, it's hashtag blessed, right? We get a picture of our beautiful kids and our grandkids and we tag it. Hashtag blessed, right? Some of you were out yesterday and you had your pumpkin spice latte and your flannel shirt and you were in the forest and you were like, hashtag blessed, right? Out there on social media, right? <laughs> Maybe you got the first, maybe you were at the door closest to the grocery store. You, you were out shopping yesterday, you got that door, that, that, that parking spot closest to the door, and you thought to yourself, man, I am blessed and highly favored to have got this parking spot today. Well, what does it really mean to be blessed, right? Our common understanding of blessing is we, we think about God and he gives us good things. We think about blessing in our finances, blessing in good health. We think of the blessing of family, uh, of friends, of our career. And, and we should be thankful and grateful for all of those blessings in our life. But I wonder if there's something more to blessing than the things that we value. Right? I wonder if there's more to blessing than what we see right now on the table in front of us. Is there more to blessing than what we've been able to accumulate in our closets this year? Matthew 6, 31 says this. So don't worry about these things, saying what will we eat and what will we drink and what will we wear? For these things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. You can say ouch or amen, right? It's saying, hey, the domination of the things that we're blessed with being a material and accumulative, that those are the ways of the world. We're supposed to be thinking differently about the blessings of God. Jesus says there's a greater thing, a higher thing, a more purposeful thing uh, that leads to a blessed life than what we're eating and wearing and, and posing in the forest with, Right? Jesus says, living a grateful and blessed life comes from seeking the advancement of the kingdom of God and living and building a life of faith and righteousness. You know, we, we think our physical assets are the blessings in our lives, but Jesus wants to re redefine what it means to be blessed. He says here that we have this invitation by God to be in relationship with him and to be in partnership with his work here in this world. Brick by brick, we are called to build lives of faith and to build a city of hope. Jesus says that's where the real source of blessing lies. All that other stuff's great. All that other stuff, we are thankful for that, but the true source of blessing comes from living in this relationship with Jesus. If you're just joining us, I want to encourage you. You might need to go back a couple of weeks. We started a new series a few weeks ago in the book of Nehemiah, and we've called it Brick by Brick, and we've talked in that first week about the blessing God gives us of having a burden for the things of God, carrying a spiritual burden. And then last week, we talked about opposition to the vision. We talked about criticism and discouragement in our lives. And so today, I want to talk to you about opposition to the vision Part two. Last week was about criticism and discouragement. Today is about lies and distraction. And as I read this text today, I came up with the subtitle, Spies, Lies, and Compromise. How many want to watch a video in the book of Nehemiah called Spies, Lies, and Compromise? 
Well, that's where we are. I, I, you can go back and watch it. I'll just give you a quick, quick recap if you're just joining us. I don't want you to be lost. But here's the Coles notes to this story. In 587 BC, the, the nation of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar came into uh, to, uh, Judah and they destroyed the whole country. They ravaged the city of Jerusalem. They left its temple in ruins and they burned the city gates and destroyed the city walls. And so thousands and tens of thousands of Jews were taken captive to Babylon, uh, which was then swallowed up by the Persian Empire, right? It's kind of like, you know, like the, the little fish, the little fish and the bigger fish and the bigger fish comes along. So they got swallowed up into the Persian Empire. For 70 years, the people of Judah lived in captivity until they were finally released in small groups to begin to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple and the city. Well, about a century had passed since those first uh, people had uh, gone back. The, and, and Nehemiah, who is uh, a Jew himself, is working in the court of the Persian king. And he gets a report back from his brother who had been to Jerusalem. And he's thinking, you know, a hundred years have gone by. Just, it must be rebuilt and, and thriving. You know, our people have gone back and just really reestablished themselves. But he gets this news back that that's not the case, that the city still lies in ruins and the, the walls are still uh, in rubble. And so this idea of his people being vulnerable and defenseless, being, being um, under the thumb of, of the uh, neighboring nations, it really creates this burden in Nehemiah that something should be done. And so he begins to pray, and he prays for God's provision and his purpose, and, and he prays that he would be able to be an answer to this prayer. God gives him a burden for the city, for the people of Jerusalem, and he gives him this vision that he would go and lead them in reconstructing the walls. And so he sets his plan into motion. He gets permission from the king, and he goes back, and he, he shares his vision with the people and begins to rally the troop. And, and, and things we talked about the last few weeks, that they were slow to start. It didn't go so well at the start. You know, he got a lot of opposition, but, but eventually things started to progress, and the wall began to win, go up. How many know as the wall began to go up, so did the level of opposition that he faced, right? As the wall went up, how many know sometimes when you step into the calling of God on your life, sometimes when you decide, this is the day I'm going to make a change, right? I love what Dan said, today's the day I'm going to man up and serve Jesus. But sometimes when you make that decision, as the, as the walls go up in your life, right? we always talk about walls coming down, but in this case, it's a good thing. As, our, as we step out and the walls go up, the opposition goes up with it. Now here's the story about, the thing about Nehemiah. We could read this for its historical context. It's a great story. Spies, lies, and compromise. That sounds really cool. We could look at this and there's a lot of leadership principles in it. And if we leave this morning just having read the story and filled our hearts and my, our, our minds with the principles, we'll, we'll have gone out with more information. But what we see in this passage is God wants to connect with our hearts. There's something there. He doesn't want us just to have information on how to lead and, and the historical context. He wants to connect with our hearts because he wants to see transformation in our lives. And so last week we talked about this idea that there's always opposition to a God-given vision. And every time we begin to step into a calling, as, as soon as we start to see momentum uh, building in our lives, we can know that the enemy of our spirit, the Bible says we have a spiritual enemy, every time we step out that the enemy will show up in our lives. First, first Peter 5.8 says, stay alert. Everyone say, stay alert. stay alert. 
right now, who had Thanksgiving dinner last night? Anyone? You had turkey dinner last night? All right, so those are the people I got to watch you. You're going to be in a food coma in just a minute. All right, got to keep you awake, all that turkey. Who's having dinner this afternoon? Anybody? All right, you're all the hangry people. I got to be quick today because you're going to be uh, on my case. Okay, right? Stay alert. Turn your neighbor and say, stay alert. If your person beside you put their hand up and had turkey last night, elbow them and say, stay alert. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. The Bible says that we do have a spiritual enemy, an enemy of our souls. And so in this story, we see both the practical and the spiritual application that God wants to give us. So this morning, I want to talk to you about three lies the enemy tells to distract and separate us from our calling. Three lies the enemy tells to distract and separate us from our calling. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 6 together. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab and the rest of the enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained, though we had not yet set up the doors in the gates. So Sanballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono, but I realized they were plotting to harm me. And so this week I determined that I wasn't going to take the cheap pastor joke I wasn't going to take the, the, the dad joke. I'm not making any jokes about the planes of Oh No. You can make your own jokes up this week. So as the walls go up, so do the levels of opposition. See, Nehemiah's here that so much progress has been made and that everything is in place except for the city gates and they start to get desperate because their window, or literally their door of opportunity to uh, bring this project to a stop would be over once the gates were set in place. And so they call for Nehemiah. You know, they're kind of like, hey, if you can't beat him, join him. So they say, Nehemiah, come on down and meet with us, and maybe we can work out something that we could, you know, work together. How many know if your enemies have been persecuting you all these weeks and months, and then they want to get together? You're just kind of like, ah, this doesn't sound like a good idea to me. They act like they want to propose this way, but, but really they're thinking, how can we delay Nehemiah? How can we distract him from his cause and from his purpose, even for this last glimmer of hope that we have of getting in this place? There's still a chance that they could buy some time, distract him from the work. Maybe they have a way of getting into the city themselves and causing havoc. But Nehemiah sees right through their scheme and, and he refuses to be distracted from his calling. The first lie I want to talk to you this morning, the enemy tells you lies to slow you. Lies to slow you. Lies to separate you from your priority. How many know it's never been an easier time in all the history to be distracted? Right? There's never been an easier time than to, in this world today to be so distracted. It's been said if the devil can't destroy you, he'll distract you. Well, there used to be this saying that would say, idle hands do the devil's work. Anyone ever heard that? I think distracted hands today are doing the devil's work. How many know the devil doesn't have to distract us at all? We're just distracting ourselves at every opportunity we get. When was the last time we just sat in silence and said, God, speak to me? 
Right? When was the last time we just set aside time to worship and in and, and the word and just say, God, just would you come and fill me and speak to me? We're a distracted generation. But listen to this article from the BBC. It's talking about a distracted generation, Generation uh, Z and Generation Alpha behind them. This is what they're saying uh, even in the school system. Today's students have a problem, and it's not the one written on the chalkboard. They're so accustomed to constant stimuli from smartphone apps and streaming platforms that they can't concentrate in class. Without the ability to pay attention to something, kids are not going to be able to process information. They're not going to be able to consolidate it to memory, which means they're not going to be able to interpret, analyze, synthesize, critique, and come to some decision about the information. We are a distracted generation, right? I, don't, I used to like going to the doctor's office because they always had all those new magazines that, you know, from five years ago, but I hadn't read them yet, right? Like now I just bring like, the world in my pocket, right? I can just do everything uh, at the touch of a button. We're a distracted generation. How many know that sometimes the devil doesn't even have to do anything? He's just looking at us going, you're doing my work for me. Right? How many times have you ever pulled out your phone thinking, ah, like, scripture before screens? That's my motto. Scripture before screens. How many mornings have I found myself down some rabbit trail reading an re- email or reading the news or something before scripture? I'm like, ah, oh, I did it again. I got distracted from what I wanted to have in my life. Nehemiah 6.3, Nehemiah says, so I replied by sending this message to them. I'm engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Everyone say great work. I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? This morning I want to ask you, what great work are you engaged in for the kingdom of God? What great work are you a part of? Are you just living distracted or are you a part of something in the kingdom of God? Maybe you're here and you're, you're a part of one of our church ministries. That's amazing. Continue to pour into our, our children and, and into our youth and into our food pantry. Maybe, maybe that's your ministry. Maybe you have a ministry in the community. Maybe you're a coach or you have friendships and, and, and business connections that you are ministering through with intention and purpose. Maybe you're just raising a family of kids who are serving Jesus. What is your great work that you can't be distracted from? Whatever it is, it's a great work. Now here's the thing about distractions. How many of the distractions aren't a one-time thing? Right? You just never decide not to be distracted and you never deal with that distraction again. Four times the enemy comes and they uh, call for Nehemiah to come down from his place. Four times Nehemiah sends the same reply. Nope. I'm doing a great work. I'm doing a great work. See, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus' temptation by Satan this, uh, in this wilderness, and we know that Satan's trying to... Um, to uh, uh, distract and get Satan to co- uh, Jesus to compromise in his calling. And we, we know that uh, three times Jesus successfully rebuffs the enemy's advances. But listen to what it says in Luke 4, 13. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. Even Jesus was on the docket for Satan's disruption and temptation and distraction. Stay alert. Turn your name and say, stay alert. Stay Stay vigilant. The devil can't destroy you. He'll distract you. But don't do the devil's work by living your life distracted. 
Remind yourself that I have a great work to do. Well, the lie to slow him had failed, and so Sanballat and his crew switched tactics. Uh, they, they switched taxes. They send the messenger again, this time not with an invitation, but this time with an open letter. Uh, an open letter, and how many know an open letter? Isn't a private letter. An open letter is meant to engage the opinion of the public, right? Nehemiah 6, verse 6. And this is what it said. There's a rumor among the surrounding nations, and Geshem tells me it's true. Well, if Geshem says it, it must be true. He says, you and the Jews are planning to rebel, and that is why you're building the wall. According to the reports, you, you plan to be their king. He also reports that you have appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim about you, look, there's a king in Judah. You can be very sure that this report will get back to the king, so I suggest you come and talk it over with me first. I replied, there is no truth in any part of your story. You're making up the whole thing. They were trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could dis uh, discourage us and stop the work. And so I continued the work with even greater determination. How many love that kind of a leader? When you say, hey, when you try to get me down, I have even greater determination. I'm about a great work. And so the second lie is a lie to slander me, a lie to separate me from my supporters. There's a rumor going around. How many of you love that statement? There's a rumor about you, right? And like, if you've ever been on the other end of that statement, you know, especially when it's not even remotely true, like where did that even come from, right? That's a crazy thing. Well, Winston Churchill, he says this. He says, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth even has a chance to get its pants on. <laughs> How many know that's the truth about rumors? I talked to a man this week, and I said, hey, I heard that you weren't coming to the church anymore. And he goes, I don't know where that came from, because we're coming to the church. He said, it's funny, because I also went to work, and the people at work told me they heard I quit. So this man was at the subject of root. I don't know what's going on with this guy. Getting desperate, Nehemiah's enemies are trying both to force Nehemiah into meeting them. Uh, he's hoping to undermine his followers' confidence in him. Like, is there something, uh, you know, adverse going on here? Something, uh, you know, under, under the darkness that we're not seeing? Uh, and he's even threatening that, that King Artaxerxes, who's given his blessing all along, is going to hear about this, and he's going to put a stop to this. You know, Nehemiah could have been so upset. He could have lost so much focus. He could have just tried to go around defending himself, trying to, you know, rally the troops around him. You know, are we good? Are we good? He could have spent so much time addressing the gossip that he would have been defeated and, and stalled. And, and so we see he, he didn't ignore it. Sometimes when the lies directed to him, he's just like, you know what, I'm just not even going to recognize that. Uh, there's a, a nature here where this is kind of like a public accusation, trying to discredit him. And so he addresses it, but he simply says, this isn't true. And he goes back to work, not deterred, but determined. I know when the enemy comes at you to distract you, you need to be not deterred, but determined. How many want that kind of fortitude in your life, right? When Satan gets up in your business, you're like, this is a wrong move for me, buddy, right? You're trying to deter me, but I'm going to be even more determined to do the will of God in my life. Craig Rochelle says, don't let the whispers of people distract you from the call of God. Don't let the things that people are whispering about you distract you from the call that God has placed on your life. 
So Nehemiah, he doesn't belabor it. He doesn't try to go and convince everyone that's innocent. He simply says, it's not true. And the people who know me, know me. Uh, Warren Wearsby, he says, if we take care of our character, we can trust God to take care of our reputation. I, I put it this way. Give care to what's true about you, and you won't have to care what people say about you. Give care to what's true about you, and you don't need to worry about what people say about you. When you live a life that honors God, don't let the critics knock you off God's mission for your life. Last week as we were wrapping up, we talked about this idea that fulfilling the vision of God for our lives comes both building and a battle. It comes brick by brick, but it also comes battle by battle. That's how we make progress in the kingdom of God. And so we saw last week that Nehemiah had armed his workers. He had a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other. And this is how they were building and fighting, building and fighting, preparing to stave off the enemy's attack. I, I love, you know, they had both hands occupied. How many just love a multi-tool? Anyone love a multi-tool? Just like a, a one-tool-fits-all kind of tool. How many know the Bible is a multi-tool? The, the Bible says of itself that it is both a tool for building up and a weapon for tearing down. How many know that we need to be in the word of God? That's what God gives us to both build up our lives and to tear down the lies of the enemy. 2 Corinthians 10 says we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. Friends, if you're not in the word of God, you don't know what the word of God says about you and you're not armed either with the tool to build or the weapon to stave off the enemy's attacks against your life. You know, it sounded so simplistic when I was a kid. You need to read your Bible. The older I get and the more experienced I get, the more I stand in front of you know, what God is doing and face the attacks of the enemy, the more I recognize the importance of having a tool to build and a weapon to fight for my family and for my life. Can I encourage you today to keep pushing out the lies of the enemy that try to accuse you, try to distract you from pursuing the great kingdom work you're doing? You know, this culture that we live in is, is so confused. So confused. How do we fight against the confusion? How do we stand on what is true by being in the word of God? Can I encourage you this morning to be persistent and keep taking one step of faith after another, not letting yourself be distracted by the mission, of, by the opposition, so that you can start to see the fulfillment of God in your life, building a life of faith in a city of hope. So it says here that the enemies are getting desperate now. They start to turn to theatrics. They start to look for someone to bribe in the city of Jerusalem. And it's interesting, if you continue to read this passage, you'll see that, there, that it, uh, Nehemiah's actually had quite a bit of opposition, even within the city. There have been people who have aligned themselves with the enemy, even people who profess to be God followers, yet through intermarriage and their allegiances and alliances to the nations around them, uh, they're opposing what God's doing through Nehemiah. And this is what uh, the, the enemy is being able to find a foothold in the city. It says this, later I went to meet Shemima, Shemaya, Aunt Shemima, no. 
Nehemiah 6.10, I went to visit Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the grandson of Mahadabel. How many know I practiced that a few times yesterday? <laughs> and I went to his home, and he was confined to his home. And he said, let us meet together inside the temple of God and bolt the door shut. Your enemies are coming to kill you tonight. He goes to Shemaiah's house, and Shemaiah says, I'm afraid to leave my house. You and I should go together to the temple of God and, and lock ourselves in the inner courts so that we'll be safe from their attack. Verse 11 says, but I replied, should someone in my position run from danger? Should someone in my position enter the temple to save his life? No, I won't do it. And I realized that God had not spoken to him, but that he had uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. They were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin, and then they would be able to accuse and discredit me. The third lie is lies to scare me, lies to separate me from God. You know, this whole scenario seems really odd. What we see here is, is uh, Shemaiah is known to be a prophet within the nation, one who speaks for God. And, and we see here that Nehemiah, had, uh, he, he goes to his house and, and he, he hears this message that there's a, a fear that the enemy's trying to instill in him. And, and he says, go hide with me in the temple. And, and this is why it's so sinister, not only because it would be poor leadership on his part, to be hiding uh, in the face of this uh, attack and battle. Not only would, would his, uh, his followers be looking for their leader, wondering what happened in Nehemiah, but we also see in the Old Testament that it was improper for anyone other than the priest to go into the temple. It would be improper, it would be against the, the law of Moses that God had given to Moses uh, for anyone other than the priest to be going into the temple. And so the enemy's trying to not only get him to violate his conscience, but trying to get him to uh, separate himself from God by uh, going against the commands and will of God. And so Shemaiah is trying to persuade Nehemiah. He's given him ample disregard to disregard God's lie, he, he, uh, ample justification. He's saying, come on, it's, it's, it's the threat of death. Like, come on, if anyone has justification to break God's law, let's go together and hide in the temple. You know, the fear is often a prime motivator for sin. Often we sin because we fear that we're going to miss out on something. I know in the Garden of Eden when uh, Adam and Eve were in the garden and the enemy came and said, did God really say? Did God say, did you know that God's actually trying to cut you out of the picture? God's actually trying to, to rob you of blessing so that he would only himself, you know, be blessed. And, and the enemy is trying to say, hey, there's a fear, a fear of missing out on something God has for your life. Uh, there's this fear of facing our pain. Our world is in so much sin because we're self-medicating and numbing and trying to find ways to fulfill the void in our life because it's out of this fear of facing the pain that God really wants to bring wholeness and healing to. Sometimes we sin out of fear of persecution. What will people say to us when we look at the whispers of men before we look at the call of God on our life? And so we need discernment. Nehemiah knew Shemaiah was a false prophet because his message contradicted the commands and teaching of the word of God. Isaiah 8.20 says, look at God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict them are completely in the dark. Discernment is the ability to judge between right and wrong. 
right, students in this place. You need to know this, that we have politicians and educators and influencers, cultural influencers, social influencers, and the Bible says that they are in the dark because they're not in the word and the will of God. And so they're trying to create a culture of influence. They're trying to tell us what's right and, and how we should be thinking. The Bible says that they are in the darkness. Students, you need to be in the word of God. Because if you don't know what God says is true, then you're going to be victim to all that everyone else is saying. How many know that you don't want to have advice from someone in the darkness? You want to have advice from someone who sees clearly things as they are. We all have a conscience that tells us what's right or wrong. The Bible says that we can sear that conscience when we continue to go against it. So our culture lives with a seared conscience. But as believers, as Christians, we also have the added benefit of having the Holy Spirit know what God's right and wrong is. 1 John 4.1 says, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in this world. So whether it's the secular realm or even in the spiritual realm, the Bible says we should test the spirit and see if it's true. You should be testing everything I say to you. Sometimes I say some crazy stuff up here. You know that, right? And I catch myself sometimes just saying weird stuff, right? And, but when it comes to the word of God, you gotta test the spirit. If you're not part of our, our church community, it's, it's kind of an inside joke. It's just gonna have so much bandwidth up here when I'm talking. I just say wild things sometimes. But how do we know that testing the spirit is like a lot like discerning if the milk in your fridge is sour or not, right? Anyone ever had like the, the milk in your fridge, right? And, and what do you do when you're trying to discern if it's, if, it's, if it's good or not, right? You take a look, right? You look in there and you see, is there anything in here that shouldn't be in here? Do I see anything that doesn't look like milk? Do I see any chunks do I see anything of color, right? Unless it's chocolate. Is there anything in here, right? What we do is we take the look and then we take that sniff, right? You're kind of like, you're kind of looking, is there anything sour going on in this container, right? And then if it's all good so far, then you take the drink, right? Where's all the dads at? How many know that we drink out of the carton when no one's looking, right? You, like, you know it's true. We all do it. If you come to my house, I'm sorry. I'm drinking out of the carton at <laughs> uh, some part. But listen, this is what the, the God says. We need to look. We need to look at what's being said. We need to see, does this align with the word of God? Is there anything in this that's not lining up with what God says is true? Take a look. Then take a sniff. Take a sniff. Does this, does this line up with what the Holy Spirit is putting on my heart? You know, if anyone even comes to you and says, hey, I'm a prophet. I have a word of God from you, for you. I say, take a sniff. I don't accept everything that people say to me, even though they say it's from God. I take a sniff. I say, does this align with what God's been putting on my heart? And sometimes it is, and that's confirmation, and that's, a, that's great. That's one step in that journey of knowing what God has for my life. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I never tell people, thus saith the Lord, that God said this to you. I never say that. What I always say is, I feel like God might be saying this to you. Let's discern together if what I'm saying is true because I'm fallible. I could be wrong. I said, let's, let's, let's determine this together. Does this resonate with you? If they say, yeah, then great. 
If they say no, then I say, well, just put that on the shelf and just meditate on that and see if that might be something that God would bring up in the future. Take, take that sniff. And, and, and if it's all good, and if we're saying, yeah, this seems like what God would have us to do, then take that swig. Take that big drink. Take a step of faith in that direction. Explore. Say, God, I'm going to take a step in this direction, what you're prompting me to do, and I'm going to see how you lead and how you guide me as I go forward. We need to learn how to discern both in the spiritual world and in the culture that we live in. Take the sniff test. You know, Shemaiah's scheme, he didn't even make it past the first step. Nehemiah's like, I see you're not even, you're not a prophet. You're in it for the prophet. You're trying to shipwreck me, trying to derail me from God's purposes on my life. We've been talking in this series about having a God-given dream, a vision having a burden for what is and having a vision for what could be. The life that I'm living in and how do I see it progressing into God's plans and purposes? How do I affect the city? Uh, how do I bring hope to it? What is God's vision and how do I, am I part of it as a church? What are the bricks by bricks that we want to build and lay and see God develop in the city that we live in? Anything we know that we can't be distracted from what God is calling us to do.